And so let us hear then God's word from Romans 1 and verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The grass weathers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. As we begin here today, I want us to think about the power of words. Now, maybe you think of Harry Potter or Gandalf and the power of words that they could affect change. Uh, Maybe you think of the hocus pocus done at the mass in the Catholic Church. And as they took the words of John 6, rather literally, of course. Um, Maybe we think of the power of the words that people have over uh, others. As we talk to others, uh, our words of encouragement, our words of criticism, they have great power. And uh, we can think of our words to others or words others have spoken to us, either to encourage or to discourage. We have the saying, of course, that the pen is mightier than the sword. And certainly this is true, the the idea of worldview and and, uh, thought and and so forth can be far more powerful than guns and tanks and swords and so forth. And maybe also we can think of the media, both social media and the mainstream media. Um, They can color our view of just about anything. Their words can tell us what we think we should think about a particular event. Words have power, great power. And Paul here now addresses that in regard to the gospel. Last time we began this theme of Paul in this letter of Romans in verses 16 and 17. And I dwelt, first of all, on the idea of shame. And there are two primary ideas there. First, because we are sinners, we have shame. As Adam and Eve did after they sinned, they tried to cover their sin. And we do many things to try to cover our sin. We try to do good things, or we just ignore our sin and do whatever we want. But we're still covering it up in some way. But there is nothing that we can do to cover our sin. There's nothing we can do to get rid of our shame. Only if God comes to us and covers our sin can our shame be removed. But Paul especially is emphasizing the point that when we think about Christianity, the cross, the truth of the scriptures, God becoming man, God dying, the resurrection, the idea of conquering through weakness, And then all the the solas that we talk about, right? Faith alone and grace alone and Christ alone and scripture alone to God alone be the glory. When we think about all these things, they seem rather foolish in the eyes of the world. Even just here a few moments ago, we read from John 6 and Jesus is talking about eating his body and drinking his blood. And and the people then said, well, that's just crazy. We, We can't follow him anymore. And so whether we're talking about the world or even in the halls of the churches that advocate for work salvation, these ideas are foolishness. And yet, there's nothing for us to be ashamed of because the things that we find here in the, in the book of Romans, this 
Paul explains to us is how our shame is removed, and it leaves us unashamed. And so we should not be ashamed then to speak to others about it. So in the last couple of weeks then, Michelle mentioned something here. What about the rest of us? If we had opportunity to talk to others about Christ, maybe the gospel in the formal sense, maybe in other ways, speaking the truth about God's word. If you had opportunity in these last couple of weeks, have you hesitated? Have you been ashamed to speak? Or like Paul, have you spoken with confidence and boldness? Well, you may recall last time I I pointed out briefly that in verses 1 to 15, there are roughly 10 reasons why Paul says we don't need to be ashamed. And now here in verses 16 and 17, there are about eight more. It depends on how you count things, but we're going to look at a few more of those here today. And so in verse 16 then, again it reads, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And some of your translations may or, not have, may or may not have of Christ there. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. All right, the main thing that Paul emphasizes here is the power of God. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God, he says, unto salvation. This is what leaves us without shame. This is why Paul is not ashamed to speak of these things. So what does he mean by this? Well, like last time, I talked about two ideas in regard to shame, so I think Paul also has two ideas here. The power of God itself, in and of itself, and the power of God in relation to the gospel message. So first of all, the power of God. We have no power in and of ourselves. We have no power to effect change in our hearts. We have no power to add anything to the work of Christ to secure our salvation. None at all. So let's look at a couple passages here, three actually. Let's turn first to Ephesians and chapter 2. I do want to return to this chapter here in just a moment. But let's start with verses 1 to 3. And Paul's words in Ephesians are sometimes called the Cliff Notes version of Romans. Verses 1 to 3 are a summary of Romans 1.18 to 3.20. So notice what he says here. Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. And once you walked, once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. And so Paul says, you were this way, referring to Gentiles. And then he says, we also, just like the others, are like this. So Jew and Gentile are both dead in sin. Children of wrath, we are born this way, objects of God's wrath. And so spiritually speaking, we are dead. We have no power. We cannot change our hearts. We cannot do anything. We are unable and frankly, we are unwilling to do anything good either. And as you may recall from last time in Philippians 3, Paul says in verse 8, 
Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Basically, all of our good things, the best things we do, might as well just throw them away because they do not change our hearts. They may pretty up something, but we're still tombs filled with yuck and filth. We may put flowers around it and so forth, but it's still a place of death. And that is what describes us. Like a dead person cannot come back to life, we cannot do anything. We have no power. Now remember, the standard that God expects of us is perfection. Jesus said we must be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. We see throughout the Old Testament that we are to be holy as God is holy. Even if we could be perfect in one way, which we can't, but even if we could, that wouldn't be enough. Because God expects us in every way. And so we have no power to do what God requires of us. But God, thankfully, has done something in his power. It is unto salvation. Now, notice then this idea. There is no shame for us to admit that we have no power. It is not shameful us to say that we cannot contribute to our salvation. Because in so doing, we are saying, Jesus did it all for me. There's no shame in that. Now, in our pride and in our arrogance, we may think that is rather foolish and such, but no, Jesus did it all because he had the power, he had the ability to be perfect in our place. But let's finish this thought. We'll return to that thought here in a moment. Let's turn back to, um, uh, well, let's turn here now to Romans chapter 6. And let me read a little bit here. In Romans 6, Paul says, Verse 16, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death, of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And so Paul says we were slaves of sin, unable to do anything other than sin. We are in bondage. But God has done something, right? God has set us free. So, um, as we uh, look at Ephesians again here, now chapter 2, let's continue then. In verse 4, he continues this thought, and note the contrast, but God. He does this also in Romans 3. After all this description of our sin, he says, but now. And so here, after these three verses, he says, but God, who is rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And he continues here. Um, And so again, we have no power to do this, but God in his power has. He has made us alive spiritually. He has given us new hearts so that we can repent and we can believe. He has set us free from our bondage. Let's turn then also to Titus and uh, chapter 3. 
<clears throat> in our evening studies, we will look at these verses in detail in, uh, in a couple weeks or so. And uh, let's begin in verse 4, Titus 3, verse 4. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Okay. <clears throat> so our first thought is simply this. There's no reason for us to be ashamed of the gospel because it's God's power that has made all this happen. We can't do it, but God has. And so this is why we don't need to be ashamed. Now, the second idea is this. As we look at Romans 1 verse 16 again, notice that little pronoun there. For it is the power of God. What is it? What are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation. God certainly has power, and I think that's part of what Paul is talking about here. He's going to go on and say that in different ways through his letter. But he's also saying here that the gospel has power. The words of the gospel message actually have power. Power. Now, as I started here a few moments ago, uh, we actually believe that words have power. And it's not just Harry Potter that has power and not the muggles or something. Okay? We actually believe that words have power. Even if we say sticks and stones may break my bones, but words and names will never hurt me, right? We don't really believe that. Because we know that words can be very hurtful. And many times far worse than sticks and stones. But words also have power to heal and to encourage. And so as we think about words having power, when we preach the gospel, okay, someone in a formal sense like myself here at a pulpit or more in an everyday way, as Michelle just mentioned here, okay, whenever we're proclaiming the gospel, these words have power. Now, how so? Well, we need to think of it in two ways. First of all, <clears throat> my words have power only to condemn. When I proclaim the gospel, when I tell people about Jesus, when you tell them about the truths of Scripture, hey, your words actually have the power to condemn them. If people reject Jesus... If people reject the words of salvation, it actually hardens their hearts further. Okay. Now, ultimately, it's not because I have the power, but because I'm proclaiming the words of truth. And those words have the power to harden those who reject the truth. Okay. They're already hard. They're already dead. And if they reject it, it's going to harden them even further. But on the other hand, when the words of truth are spoken... And it brings about a positive response. Okay? That's because the Holy Spirit is working in the heart and life of that person. When the person comes to understand, when that person comes to believe, the gospel through the Spirit, the words that we have spoken then, actually changes a person's heart. Okay? Now the words that we speak have been termed the outward call. 
Hey, you are hearing them right now. Your ears are actually hearing these words. This is outwardly done. Okay. And, obviously, uh, those words can either harden you or they can bring about blessing. So whether you speak the truth to someone once or dozens of times, this is the outward call. But the Spirit, then, can take these words and then speak on the inside, as it were, of the person, in their heart, in their mind, in their conscience. And he then can and does change dead, hard hearts to make them alive and soft. He is the one speaking to the person on the inside, okay, the inner ear, if you will. And so hence we call this the inward call. And so when the gospel is proclaimed, right, this is outwardly done. When the Spirit takes those words and speaks to the person on the inside, we call it the inward call. Other people will call it the effectual call, um, and that's because the Spirit is effecting change, okay, bringing about new life. And so our words don't do that, but God uses our words and works within the person. To bring about new life. Maybe we could think of it like this. You remember when uh, uh, Moses and Aaron were doing the plagues and all that there in Egypt. And you remember the magicians? All they could do is make it worse. Hey, when they pronounced their words, right, it brought about more blood and more frogs and so forth. It didn't change the blood to water. It didn't get rid of the frogs. It just added to the judgment. So in a sense... All that our words can do at the most, with our own ability, if you will, is to add to the frogs, so to speak. All we can do is condemn. But God does and uh, take our words as we proclaim it and changes people's hearts. One commentator said it this way, The gospel is the channel through which salvation is unleashed. We're the ones saying the words. But God is the one unleashing the dead heart, setting free those who are in bondage. Let's turn a moment then to 1 Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> For Peter says similar things here. In 1 Peter 1, it's being reading in verse 22, uh, but the main idea is here in verses 23 to 25. Verse 22 says, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of the man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and this flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever." Now, Peter initially is saying, look, God's word has power, period. Okay? Just in a very general sense. The word of God lives and brings about life. It did in creation when God spoke. It does in our salvation and our sanctification. We use the word of God to grow in grace. And so, obviously, I use this passage after I read the scriptures. But notice how he ends it in verse, the end of verse 25. Now, this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. So notice how even Peter is emphasizing the same idea as Paul here. 
God's word has power, and especially in the gospel. The gospel has power because it is God's word. And as we proclaim the God's word and the spirit is working, it can bring about life. Now, as I've said on other occasions in Ephesians 6, Paul talks about the word of God being a double-edged sword. And so whenever the word of God goes forth, it always does something. It has power. This is God's word. But sometimes it goes forth, and as it were, the one side of the sword hardens some people. Hopefully no one here today is hearing this word and being hardened by it. But the word of God's always going to do something. Okay? The other side of the sword, as it were, goes forth, and it cuts through and brings about blessing, eternal life. And sanctification. Okay. And so uh, here's the idea. So back to the, the main point. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel has power. Because ultimately it is God's word and God, his power works through our words to bring about change. And so we are sinners. We are dead there is no one righteous, right? We are filled with shame. But God uses the gospel to change all of that. It changes our shame and leaves us unashamed. So let's not be ashamed to tell others about it. This is his idea. <clears throat> all right. Well, as always, there's so much to say. But let's continue to the next phrase. Paul says it is the power of God unto salvation. Now, we're not talking about the power of God to create. Right? Even Jesus feeding the 5,000, that's the power to create. His words brought that about. Uh, we're not talking about the power of God unto judgment, though certainly, right, think of the final judgment. No, we're talking about the power of God through the gospel here to bring about salvation. And now what are we saved from? What are we saved from? In uh, liberal churches and uh, woke churches today, we are saved from the oppressor. We are saved from this idea that God is somehow wrathful. Okay. Salvation can mean various things depending on which church you go to. But what are we saved from? Are we saved from ourselves? Well, yes. Are we saved from Satan? Well, yeah, that's true too. Are we saved from death? Yes. But ultimately, it is the gospel, the power of God through the gospel that saves us from God and his wrath. Our sin has made God so angry that we deserve judgment. And he has every right to be angry. But through the work of Christ, right, God is no longer angry with us. We are saved from the judgment that we deserve. That's the ultimate point. We can be saved from other lesser things, but ultimately we are saved from judgment. Now let me expand here on this word salvation a little bit. <clears throat> you might remember I've, I've talked about this in the past. It's been a little while, and at least according to my memory. Um, 
The word salvation can mean different things depending on the context. We tend to use it in a very uniform way, but that isn't the case that we see in the scriptures. It can have a past meaning, a present meaning, or a future meaning, depending on the context. Sometimes it refers to all of them. So we can say, I was saved, or I have been saved when I believed in Jesus. Something that happened, whatever, a few years ago, or 50 years ago, or something like that. I was saved. It's, it's done. It's over. And maybe we could say that's Paul's emphasis here, right? It is the power of God unto salvation, something that is uh, a done deal. But we can also read passages like Philippians 2, where Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's the same word, but obviously he has something else in mind. We are not talking about work salvation. We're talking about working out our salvation, or we could say our sanctification. So we can say, I, I was saved, but we also can say, I am being saved. And the difference is, I was saved, I was converted back whenever that was, and I am in the process of becoming holy and righteous. But then there's the future element. And that is, we can say, and the scripture will say, I will be saved on the day of judgment. And ultimately, that's the point, isn't it? When God's wrath is poured out on humanity, when earth is consumed with fire, when the heavens are destroyed, when all the dead are raised up and stand before God on that day of judgment, when all of our sins are placed before us and we see, I deserve God's wrath and judgment, we can say, that I will be saved on that day because of what Jesus has done for me. Okay? And so in a sense, we haven't been saved yet. But in another sense, we can say we've already been saved and we're in the process of being saved. So it depends on the context on what is meant. Maybe Paul's emphasizing the past here. And yet, in light of what he goes on to say in his letter, he's going to talk about the present and the future salvation. But ultimately, our future salvation on the day of judgment has begun now and is in the process of God making us like himself. New hearts have been given through the power of the gospel and the spirit working in us. The spirit is working in us to make us fit for heaven. And on that day, <clears throat> when our name is called and we stand before God and all of our sins are presented, okay, Christ says, but I have lived and died for him or for her. And we are saved from the judgment. Okay. <clears throat> and so it is the power of God unto salvation, Paul says, the gospel. And so the power of God that made all things is the same power that makes us new creations. The power that saved Israel from Egypt is the same power that redeems us. The salvation that they enjoyed is the salvation we enjoy, <coughs> but unto eternity. <coughs> Excuse me.
And so the salvation that Christ has accomplished means we are no longer subject to his wrath and judgment. But through it all, we do nothing to unleash this power. It is not my choice. It is not my effort. It's not something special about me. All we do to receive this salvation is to believe in somebody else. And so as Paul says next, is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Now we're not putting faith in faith. We're not talking about sincerity and zeal and so forth. We're talking about putting our faith in someone else. Okay? And so all that we do is put our faith in Jesus, rest in him, trusting that he has done what is necessary to save us from the judgment. Now, as I said a little bit ago, God's standards for us are perfection. He expects this for us, and he will not let anyone into heaven unless they are perfect. Obviously, none of us can go to heaven then. But if we trust in Jesus to be perfect in our place, then we can go to heaven. Because Jesus has come to do this, and he has the power to do this. But of course, because we're sinners, we deserve judgment. We deserve an eternity in hell. And the only way that we can rightly pay for our sins is spend an eternity apart from God. But Jesus has come, of course, and taken that judgment for us. He received the full wrath of God on the cross in our place. And so if we put our trust in him, if we believe in him, then we can be saved from that judgment. And through this work, then, Christ has reconciled us to the Father. We are his. Left to ourselves, we hate him. And he is angry with us. But when we trust in Jesus, who has made it all right with God we now can come to God as our Heavenly Father. He is no longer angry with us. We are saved. Our shame is removed. And for everyone, anyone who believes this, there is salvation. We don't have to do anything. We're just resting in Christ. So you see why we're not ashamed. That shame has been taken, taken away, and there's no reason for us to hesitate to tell others about it. All right, now notice how Paul ends this verse. He says, for everyone who believes, and then he expands, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. All right, now there is a chronological point to this first here. Uh, God did choose Abraham first, obviously. He chose Israel first before the Gentiles in a chronological sense. The Gentiles were not chosen, you might say, until after Pentecost. We see Cornelius in Acts 10 and so on and so forth. Okay, chronologically that's true. There have been a few exceptions over the years, but yeah, okay. And Paul, right, he went to the synagogue first before he went to the Gentiles. And that's because the promises were made initially to the descendants of Abraham. So some people say, maybe it's better for us to translate this word as priority, or at least to give it that meaning. Okay? 
for the Jew who has priority and also for the Greek. Now today, the, the big you know, buzzword is privilege. The Jews have privilege because God gave them that privilege. Okay? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 sons, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, Solomon, and, and many others, right? They have these blessings first. And of course, Jesus was a Jew as well. The promises, the covenants, the law, the tabernacle, the king, all these things God gave to Jews. They had priority. And when he said the Gentiles could, could now be a part of this, right, they're, they're joining what's already been established. The church is not really something new. What's new about the church is now Gentiles can be part of it. The church really began back in the Garden of Eden. Okay? Or you could say Abraham. And so as he's going to say in chapter 11, right, the Gentiles are grafted into something. Again, it's not something separate. We're grafted in to the tree that is Israel. As God showed grace to Israel, so he has shown grace to the Gentile. As the Gentile is not worthy, so too the Jew is not worthy of this, as he'll go on to say. And so for all who believe, even though we're not first in line, we still have the same blessings if we are trusting in Christ. And so faith is not a work, but it is essential for salvation. And that faith is only possible if God gives us the power to believe. And that power comes through the Spirit, and that power comes through the proclamation of the gospel that the Spirit uses. And so this removes our shame, and we should not hesitate to tell others about it. So I leave us today then with these questions. <clears throat> Have you believed in Christ? Just because you're sitting here doesn't mean that you have. Even if you've been sitting in church for years, doesn't necessarily mean you have. Have you trusted in this power? Have you looked to Christ? Has God's power through his spirit worked in your heart? Are you saved from God's wrath through Jesus Christ? Well, the answer to this question is simple, isn't it? If you believe in Jesus to do these things for you, you're saved. It's not that complicated. Have you trusted in Christ? If you have trusted in Jesus, trusting that he is God, verse 3, trusting that he has died and risen again, verse 4, and that he obeyed for you and he took the punishment for you, then you can be confident that God has worked in your heart, changing it, making it alive. But if you have not yet believed in Christ, do so today. You may not be alive tomorrow. <clears throat> this is our only hope for our shame to be taken care of. And that is by trusting in Christ alone. For he is our only hope of salvation from God's wrath. And so believe in him, trust in him. And so as Paul begins this letter, <clears throat> he, as it were, gives us the final answer at the beginning. Okay? And he's going to go then through the rest of the letter to explain how all of this works. 
All right. Well, Lord willing, next time we will look at verse 17. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Father and God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the power of your word because it is your word. We pray, Lord, that as uh, I have endeavored to give this outward explanation of your word here today, we pray, Lord, that your word uh, would not come back void, but in particular, would go forth with blessing only and no judgment. We pray, Lord, that uh, the power of your word through this uh, message here today, through the gospel, through these truths that we've seen here in this verse, we pray, Lord, that your power would affect blessing and change for everyone here. We thank you and praise you, Lord, that <clears throat> you have not left us in our sin, in our rebellion, in our slavery, in our deadness, but you have come to us to make us alive, that we might respond in faith. You have sent forth your Son to live for us, to die for us, to reconcile us to yourself. We thank you and praise you for this. We thank you that you have uh, saved us from the judgment that we deserve, and that judgment that is yet to happen. We know that we can stand and will stand confidently, in your presence because of Christ. We thank you for this, Lord. And, and so, <clears throat> again, we pray that you would um, work through your word here today for your honor and for your glory and for the blessing of your people. We pray all this then in Christ's name.